Thank you for listening to the BJJ Brick Podcast. We'll be bringing you Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu and good times. We hope to flatten your Jiu-Jitsu learning curve, help you get the most out of your grappling ability, and meet your goals both on and off the mat. All right, my friends, welcome back to the BJJ Brick Podcast. This is episode 287. I'm on the line with my good buddy Gary and my good buddy Byron. Before we start the show this week, uh, we need to mention our corporate sponsor, Peter Pan Peanut Butter, <laughs> producing quality nut butter for discerning customers for over 90 years. Comes in a smooth and a crunchy variety. Peter Pan Peanut Butter. How you doing tonight, Gary? Well, you know, I just got done eating a Peter Pan Peanut Butter sandwich, so I'm doing good. Um, you know, I know, Joe, you had a peanut, Peter Pan Peanut Butter sandwich for lunch, and uh, Byron, he just had nut butter. <laughs> Sometimes that's enough. Isn't that just Skippy? <laughs> hey, we can't talk about Skippy. Yep, yeah, we dropped them and we picked up Peter Pan. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'm excited about this episode here. We have Jake McKenzie, uh, great competitor on the mats, black belt, and also a, a great coach as well. So we're looking forward to sharing you, sharing with you the interview that uh, we have with him. Oh, hold on, guys. I just got a text from oh Peter Pan Peanut Butter, and they are pretty upset that uh, we said that they're one of our sponsors, and uh, they actually have nothing to do with us. When I <laughs> told they them, they haven't when been I, giving you free peanut butter. No, they haven't. But when I told them that uh, we're a jujitsu podcast, they said, "Oh, sorry, keep doing whatever you want to do." So uh, I think we're okay. Nice. Our street cred finally paid off. Uh, Finally paid off, and I think they probably saw the article that we're the award-winning number two ranked podcast in the nation. In the nation, <laughs> uh, Gary, that just is confusing. Uh, <laughs> martial world, arts then. podcast, that is. <laughs> okay, martial arts podcast. There are a few qualifiers there. Yeah, there's several more that we're not even going to bother to cover. <laughs> uh, somebody ranked us as number two for martial arts podcast, one list, and uh, I mean, that's awesome. We actually think he was probably drunk when he wrote it, but um, hey, we'll take it. Yep. Hey, guys, something happened on the mats at my home gym last week that I don't know if you've ever seen this before. Uh, mid Midway through a, a round after class is over, you know, some guys, some people stayed to roll late uh uh, one of my friends popped the question to his girlfriend right there on the mat. Awesome. Yep. Wow. So he, he's, That's cool. he's been training. A, he's been training about a year. She's been training a little longer or a little shorter. So uh, congratulations, Todd Rodriguez and Vicky Webb. And, you know, I bet you Vicky wishes she would have had some forewarning that something like this might happen to her during her first year of jujitsu. A lot of things <laughs> you don't know when you're going into your first year of jujitsu. Uh, Byron, tell us a little bit about your book, your audio book that you've written to help people navigate uh, through their first year of jiu-jitsu. And uh, are you going to make an amendment to the book to add what to do when you get uh, proposed to? Wow. I uh, I feel like I've left out – I need another chapter because this <laughs> was not covered at all. And uh, there's six chapters in there, everything from finding the right gym to you, you know, the benefits of jiu-jitsu, and all the way up to uh, tournaments and, and what uh, to expect and how to prepare for something like that. Yeah, I kind of need a chapter 7 or maybe 6.5. or No, it wouldn't really be. It'd be 3.5 because chapter 3 is the benefits of jiu-jitsu. 3.5 would be talking about the relationships you could build in jiu-jitsu and even some off-the-mat style of relationships as well. 
congratulations to the uh, young couple <laughs> and, and their uh, future happiness as a married couple. And that's really cool. Um, yeah, that's really it's an audio book, eleven ninety nine. It's really targeted at uh, helping you get to that first year as easily as possible. I know that looking back, everybody in that first year has some struggles that they wish they could have smoothed over or just some hurdles that they could have got over a little easier. And that's what the book is supposed to help you with. So uh, hopefully that, that it's helped uh, keep some people on the mats through that first year because it can be kind of difficult. And uh, it's two and a half hours long. And it's much like a, like a podcast. It's just, it's just me talking to you about your first year of jiu-jitsu. And uh, the money goes to help support the show. So check it out if you are in that category of one year or under. Hey, Joe, uh, do you know if they knew each other before jiu-jitsu or did they meet uh, at jiu-jitsu? I think they, they knew each other in that they went to the same high school, but she's a few years older. I don't think they were friends in high school. Okay. So, yeah. So were they rolling together when he proposed, or, or yep, how did yep. that go? Oh, that is awesome. Mid-roll. <laughs> That's pretty neat. <laughs> so, what yep. was so the, congratulations. Did he, did he get locked up in a submission, or did she get locked up in a submission and then propose, like, hey, or else? <laughs> you go yeah. to yep. Yeah, yeah. I'll crank on this Kimura unless you say yes. Well, the the funny thing is uh, he's been doing jiu-jitsu about a year. And her uncles, though, are all uh, fairly large, formidable uh, local fighters, you know, jiu-jitsu and MMA. Oh. <laughs> so there was a moment, and they all trained with us, and there was a, a moment he wasn't sure he wanted to tell everybody when they started dating. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. That's a neat story, Joe. Yep, definitely. Uh, they have a. That's a cool way to do that because you have a story that goes with it, and he, they are fortunate enough to both have uh, somebody close to them, the, each other, that also does jujitsu, so they could go through that journey as a team. You know, I remember uh, going to your wedding, Byron, and I'm sitting there in a row, and as I look at the row in front of me. Every other person had cauliflower ears. You could just see the ears sticking out and everything. And, uh, you know, it'd be man, cauliflower ears, woman, man, cauliflower ears, woman, man, cauliflower ears, woman. So uh, I was like, well, nobody better start uh, trouble at this wedding. (laughs) (laughs) Notice Gary sat in the row behind that row. Uh, (laughs) Got to keep Gary a little further away because he causes trouble sometimes. Uh, you're, I, I, they weren't actually going to let me in. And, uh, you know, when I told them my name, they said, not a chance. And then I came back a little bit later with fake glasses and a mustache and said I was Joe Thomas, and they let me by. But the problem is when Joe tried to go, they said, you've already signed in. And <laughs> Joe, got, Joe got arrested. I spent the night in the who's cow. <laughs> <laughs> who's cow? <laughs> that was a long and lonely night. But, you know, if you're, if you're in prison, lonely is kind of the way you want it. You got that right, Joe, definitely. Well, we're covering all sorts of uh, life stories here. <laughs> Joe, so you, you got a life story, don't you? Uh, yeah, should we bring this back to jujitsu? Let's do it. Let's do that. Let's drag so, it yeah. by the ears, Joe. <laughs> so uh, tonight's uh, life lesson that uh, maybe we can learn something about jujitsu once again has to do with ships. And I've talked the last couple weeks about uh, – uh, emergency response um, 
you know, offshore. It's a little different than being onshore. But more important than how you respond really is uh, prevention. So we all want to respond properly if we have to ban and ship and, you know, get ourselves safely into the lifeboats. But uh, preferably, we don't want to ban and ship at all. And uh, one of the, the biggest tools we have on the boat to uh, keep, you know, an eye on stability is really the senior officers and their experience. Uh, a captain that's spent his life sailing, he's worked on boats that are, uh, you know, heavy draft, light draft. He's worked in rough seas and, you know, he, he knows how a boat should feel when it's intact and its stability is, is where it's supposed to be. And uh, I think... So, so as soon as it starts to get out of whack, he can say, you know, something's not right here and do some investigation and find out that maybe they've sprung a leak and they're flooding some tanks or, or something of that nature. And I think the way this relates to jujitsu is it really demonstrates the uh, value of just hours and hours of mat time doing good jujitsu. And you get so familiar with that. And then... Um, when when it starts to feel wrong like you know how it should feel when you're controlling your opponent's posture and guard and when you're losing that you should be able to tell immediately because you've done hours and hours of good jujitsu does that make any sense gary it definitely does joe uh, you know you think about when we first started training and we didn't have hours and hours and years and years under a belt we would be putting a uh predicament and we probably didn't know how to react properly and you know there's there's more than one way to react properly to make sure we're not getting our guard passed to make sure we we get into a good position um, and stuff like that but as we put more and more time on the mat more and more time training more and more time learning good jujitsu as joe says we are going to know how to react we we're not even going to think about it it's just going to happen and that's when jujitsu really started to get fun when i wasn't thinking i just it, you just went on autopilot um you know kind of like what you're saying joe you you know what you're doing uh you know i know you've talked the last couple of weeks about if there's an emergency or whatever you've all trained and you know what to do you kind of go on autopilot everybody knows the rule and um I just think the more time you spend on the mat, the more time you spend training, the more time you spend drilling, the more time you spend journaling, the more time you're on your maroon app, the more time uh, you're listening to BJJ Break Podcast, you are getting quality jiu-jitsu and getting better and, and learning you know, how to react in stressful uh, situations so it's, it doesn't turn, turn into rough seas. Yep, that's correct, Gary. I was reminded while you were talking, um, when I first started doing jiu-jitsu, I remember there was a high school wrestler that was in class. It was really good. And I hadn't been doing jiu-jitsu more than a few weeks. And we have this uh, takedown drill, you know, just two guys in the center of the mat. Whoever takes the other guy down, he stays in the center and, um, you know, that kind of thing. So I go out there and here's this high school wrestler. And I just blasted a a clumsy middle-aged man, double leg. And, uh, Man, I took him right off his feet, and it's like time slowed down enough for me to be amazed with how well I was doing, that I was taking this guy down. And by the time we hit the mat, that guillotine was so tight, I I hardly had time to tap. (laughs) (laughs) You know, just a really good example of if you haven't spent hours and hours of time rolling, you don't even realize you're starting to get in trouble until it's way too late. Great point, Joe. Yeah, and I think the the big thing is be patient with yourself. If you 
are a little frustrated with your jujitsu. I mean, it's, you know, training smart does a huge value to that, but also just getting that time in on the mat and, and, and getting guillotined when you think you're doing well and, and these sorts of things. So uh, be patient with yourself and uh, you'll get there. Yep. And think about it too, as you're throwing that double leg on the middle-aged double leg, as Joe said, time moves in slow motion. And as soon as you hit the mat, you're caught in a guillotine. You know, look at that as an opportunity to learn. Um, you know, I love it if I can learn new stuff. Um, I'm getting caught in that guillotine. Maybe I can realize, you know, maybe my head's in the wrong spot. Um, you know, I, I got to correct that. Maybe I should hit a blast double um, and uh, plant my head right into his chest. Maybe I need to learn how to escape guillotines, you know, pop to the other side or whatever I need to do. Um, you know, maybe work on different takedowns, you know, make sure my head's on the inside. If I'm, if I'm going for a single leg, um, you know, things like that. And, you know, we're always going to get tapped. And, and like Byron says, it's, you know, don't get upset. Let's, let's be patient. Let's use that as a learning opportunity because, we are never going to stop learning. You know, Byron's been a black belt for a while, and I know Byron learns every day he's on that mat. I know I learn every day. I know Joe learns every day. And um, and it's, we should have a smile on our face when we're training. It, you know, training is always going to be rough. And when we're really buckling down for a competition or an MMA fight or something, you know, it's not going to be fun all the time. But, you know, you get in my category, jiu-jitsu for fun, I, I'm a, I'm trying to always have fun out there on the mat, and uh, you know, some days I I'm not the hammer, some days I'm the nail, um, and uh, you know, a lot of days I'm the nail, <laughs> but you know, I'm gonna have fun. There you go. Sometimes you're a little screwy too, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> some days, most days. <laughs> some days you're creamy peanut butter. Sometimes you're kind of chunky. <laughs> that wasn't very nice, was it? I can't believe you called me chunky. I know you called me stupid. I know you called me crazy, but um, you I know, you never called me chunky. Lumpy is a better. Uh... <laughs> yeah, lumpy. But speaking of, uh, you know, you've called me stupid and crazy. We have a quote this week from D. Gary Young. I was told that I couldn't do it. I was stupid. I was crazy. But because I believed in my dreams, I accomplished them. Byron, that's exactly what, you know, I was stupid. I was crazy. Kind of stuff like you have called me. Kind of lumpy. Kind of screwy. Yeah. I was told that I couldn't do it. And how many times have you heard that? I mean, we should never hear that in all reality. You know, as me being a parent, I don't ever want to tell my kid that he can't do something. Because if you put your mind to it, you can do it. And I'm thinking of the best... a protege, I don't know what the word I'm trying to find is, is Joe's grandson. Uh, Joe, how old is he? He's just a little over two. Just a little over two. I've seen that kid on a skateboard. <laughs> yeah. Two-year-old on a skateboard. It seems like that kid is so adventurous, he'll try anything. And I guarantee you, Joe and his wife are over there, you know, supporting that kid. You know, having him try adventures, as I guess we call it. Um, try different stuff, and, and boy, he's loving it. And uh, I'm telling you, the, the kid is fearless. There's, he's going to be that guy who was told. Well, I guess he's he's not going to be told he couldn't do it, but he's going to be able to do anything, you know, because he believed in his dreams. He accomplished them. He's tried stuff. He's uh, he's not afraid to get out there and uh, and attempt it. He's gonna he, his dreams are going to come true. Gary, I I like how you tied this into Joe's grandson, and I think that. 
it's one of the reasons why kids learn so much so fast is just their brains are are wired to do that they're wired to pick up language very quickly and that sort of thing while they're young another reason is they they don't really have that fear of failure like we have as adults they just go out and try it and if it doesn't work not a big deal try it again and i think as adults we kind of pick up that well that kind of sucked (laughs) that didn't work the first time it wasn't easy right away let's find something that's easier and uh if we could just shed the attitude and if you want to be good at something, try it. And if it's not so good, you're not so good at it, try it again. Maybe try it a little differently. And uh, I think that's that's definitely one learning tool that, that kids have that's to a strong advantage is if they fail, they, they, they fail things all the time. Imagine somebody giving up on, you know, on walking. Yeah, I kept falling down, so I just, I just stopped. And, and now I'm, I'm crawling everywhere as an able-bodied adult. No, that isn't like you need to fall down in order to learn how to walk and then ultimately run. And you can't just give up. And I think that the attitude that kids are kind of, you know, start off with is one that we lose as an adult. And uh, if we could get a little bit of that back and just say, yeah, that kind of sucked. What else could I do? How else could I approach this problem? Uh, we'd all be better off. That's a great point, Byron. And, you know, I think some of that goes to, uh, putting yourself in the right environment you know if you're in an encouraging environment it's going to be easier for you to um you know kind of take that same path and you failed once or it was difficult once but you're gonna get up there and try it again if you've got other people encouraging you to do that it makes it easier so picking the right gym is important joe i like what you said your environment that you're in you know because there are people who tell you you can't do it you know i i've been around people who tell individuals you can't do it and you know i'll tell you when i started jujitsu i remember right off the bat uh byron will know what i'm talking about but getting tapped out by mr poopy the guy's (laughs) nickname was mr poopy and the guy even drew mr poopy on the back of his gi and i got tapped out by that guy and i remember telling myself that there's no way i'm gonna quit i'm you know i just got tapped out by mr poopy like how can you be any lower? You know, I'm at the lowest of the low of the totem pole. And, you know, I'm stubborn. Um, you know, I'm going to keep going. I'm not going to quit. I'm, I'm going to find a way to do it. But, um, um, and Joe, also you're talking about the environment. I was reading here, you know, maybe six months ago uh, about uh, praise people for their uh, their trying or you know praise people for trying something not for the result and uh, you know that's something i never really heard before and and i've been practicing that around my kids and i've been practicing it with the people i work with and you know praising them for you know working hard for trying hard for that intensity that they're putting into whatever tasks they are doing and um you know there was there's some studies or whatever that shows that you know by praising that instead of the end result um because the end result you know, I, I could line up, you know, across uh, from Byron on the mat, and I'm I'm going to get tapped out. It's it's not going to happen. And uh, so, but if I go in there and I give my best, and you praise the result, you know, maybe I won't be, you know, afraid to step out on that mat. Maybe I won't be afraid of losing. Maybe I'll look at losing as a, uh, you know, a learning experience, a way to grow, grow my mind, grow my jujitsu. That's awesome, Gary. Like we just said there. Good news, guys. We have our interview with Jake McKenzie up right now. 
he is the most interesting grappler in the world. I took my unorthodox fighting style to the world of hockey. With my fighting style, I was the second person in history to be kicked off the team for trying to stab somebody with a skate. If I don't like you, you will always find a hair in your mouth when rolling with me. I don't always listen to podcasts, but when I do, I prefer the BJJ Brick Podcast. Stay sweaty, my friends. All right, my friends, I'm happy to bring Jake McKenzie to the BJJ Brick Podcast. Jake, welcome to the show. Awesome. Thanks, Byron. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here. Uh, we've got a lot to talk about. You're a top-level competitor, and, and you've got uh, a lot of great uh, stuff out there as well to, that's been helping uh, students grow and learn. But, uh, Jake, if they haven't heard of you yet, just give us a little description of who you are and kind of like a little bit of your jiu-jitsu history, if you will. Cool, yeah. Uh, my name's Jake McKenzie. I'm from Nova Scotia, Canada. I've been training jiu-jitsu probably for about, I think, like 21 years. I started when I was a kid. Um, just from a tiny little place in Nova Scotia, town of 10,000 people. Um, but I traveled all over the world competing. I lived in Brazil for, I think, maybe a total of 11 years. Um, uh, I'm married to a Brazilian girl, so we're I'm in the States right now. I'm in Ohio doing a training camp, but um, got to train all over Europe, the States, Canada, and a lot in Brazil as well. When did you first go to Brazil? I went to Brazil the first time when I was uh, 16. I went for two months. Um, I ended up meeting uh, an exchange student that I went to high school with, um, and we became friends. He actually trained a little bit of jiu-jitsu, so we did some training um, when he was in Canada. But we became really good friends, and I went back to Brazil with him. I uh, stayed with his family, I think, for two months. And then I went back to go visit them again when I was 17. Um, and then I started going to Rio in 2006. And I went to Rio. Uh, I stayed eight months the first time I went. When did you start doing uh, jiu-jitsu? I started doing jiu-jitsu when I was 12. Okay. Uh, what, <laughs> what was You said it was like a smaller place. What was it? Um, what was the transition like from going, uh, starting like at at home and then going to Brazil and 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 training there? Um, that. So I was super fortunate because like I'm from this tiny little town um, called Tro Nova Scotia. It's just a it's a town that has maybe ten thousand a population of ten thousand people. Um, and it's just on the side of the highway, um, but by some crazy circumstance. Um, Marcia Fatoza from Gracie Baja and Carlos Gracie Jr., who's the head of Gracie Baja in the IBJJF, um, there was a guy in town um, that got interested in jiu-jitsu, and he was fairly well off, and he actually brought those guys back, like, in, I think, 97 or 98 was the year I started. So my first jiu-jitsu class was with those two guys, um, and Marcio ended up staying for a couple months, actually. Um, so I was exposed to high-level jiu-jitsu right from the very first day, but I didn't really have any idea about the culture of jiu-jitsu and all the guys that started with me were brand new and they were just kind of figuring out about jiu-jitsu as well. Um, so it was a big shock when I went to Brazil and I saw how competitive the guys were and how competition-orientated all the classes were. Um, it was definitely a big eye-opener for me and I, I really think that I, I made the move down there so I could be um, just immerse myself in, in that community and get used to competing at a high level and competing often as well. When did you start competing? 
Um, I probably did jiu-jitsu for a couple years before I competed, and that was um, basically just because there was absolutely no avenue for me to compete. Like in Nova Scotia, when I started training, there was no tournaments. And then eventually when I was about a blue belt level, um, there was like one tournament a year, but I was like 15 or 16, and there was no like kids or juveniles divisions. So what my dad would do is um, I did quite a bit of cross training when I was younger. Like I did a little bit of judo. I did a lot more wrestling than judo. Um, and I always tell my dad like, oh, you know, I want to get into competing. I want to be a jiu-jitsu competitor. And my dad was like, you know, you got to be able to, to compete to become a competitor. So um, I do judo tournaments. I probably did maybe 10 judo tournaments when I was a kid. I did a lot of wrestling tournaments when I was a kid in Nova Scotia. I probably did. I don't know, 20, 30, maybe 40 wrestling competitions when I was a, when I was like in my teens. Do you think that doing that kind of that mix of judo and wrestling helped you for jujitsu? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I was fortunate too. Um, we would travel to go train wrestling. I traveled probably an hour there and an hour back. Um, but I had access to a really good coach there, a guy that, um, Corey Robinson, he was on the national team for wrestling in Canada. And, um, he's somebody that had a huge influence on me in my grappling and, and especially for competition as well, because I think uh, wrestling, that mindset makes you really tough. I think it's a different pace. It's a different grind than jujitsu is. And um, I was really fortunate that I had him and there's still stuff that I do in my jujitsu. That was stuff that he taught me. That's came from wrestling as well. The first time going to Brazil, um, what was that like? I mean, you're you're fairly young you had somebody you knew down there which i'm sure was helpful but were you training was it was it the purpose of your trip to train or was there something else going on as well um so yeah the purpose of my trip was uh was to train pretty much solely like my dad thought it was a good opportunity like that he could send me down there and i would be there with the family and the guy that i stayed with is a really good friend of mine um and i ended up training twice a day the whole time i was down there and i actually sometimes three times a day because i was taken I was taking privates down there as well. Um, the first two times that I went down actually were pretty easy because I was staying with a family. Like, you know, it was close to the gym. I didn't really have to worry about too much. Everybody in the family could speak English, so I didn't really have to go out of my comfort zone too much. Um, but the third time I went to Brazil, when I went to Rio by myself for eight months, that was a big shock for me because – uh, I didn't have someone I could stay with. Like I had to scramble and try to find a place to live. Um, I found out that a lot of Brazilians don't speak any English at all. So that was a lot trickier too. So I started to learn Portuguese a lot, a lot more like the first two trips. I don't think I learned very much Portuguese. I might've learned like, I don't know, 10 or 20 words and, uh, not very many of them were useful, you know? Um, uh, but then the first time I went to Rio, I think after the eight months, it was a big shock, but, um, I learned a lot in that trip. I learned a lot about, I think I grew up a lot because I was on my own for the whole eight months in a different country. I couldn't speak the language, you know? Um, yeah, but the third trip was a shock for me. The first two, I didn't find that bad. When, when did you figure out that, uh, you were going to be competing at a high level? Like, was there a certain tournament that you kind of surprised yourself at, or was it just a gradual growth of, uh, just climbing that ladder? Um, I'd say a little bit of both to tell you the truth. Like, um, I was, I really didn't know how to compete at all when I first started competing to tell you the truth. Like I went to the Pan Ams a couple times when I was a kid, like the, that was the one tournament a year I would do the jujitsu tournament. 
and I meddled um, both years I did it, but I didn't know the rules at all. You know, I didn't know why I won a match or why I lost a match. Like I knew if I submitted the guy or the guy submitted me, um, but I had no idea. I had nobody coaching me. Um, but when I got down to Brazil, I started to do some of the local tournaments, some of the smaller ones, and I started to have success at that level. Um, and I was like, okay, maybe I can start doing this. And I remember um, I would do really good at the smaller tournaments. And when we get to the bigger tournaments, I would kind of psych myself out a little bit. And um, I had some really good matches against really tough guys, but I really would never go too far in the big tournaments. I may, might win one or two matches and lose in the third, you know. Um, but I remember we fought a state tournament in Rio um, in 2007. I was a purple belt. Um and the state tournament used to be a really big tournament. Like you'd probably get 3000 competitors at a state tournament, 12 mats, big gymnasium. Um, and I've been training really well. And I remember I was like, man, I'm going to be really strategic in my first fight in the weight division. And I was so strategic that I got called for stalling a bunch. Cause I did stall a whole bunch and I ended up losing the first match. And I was just like, Oh man, I trained so hard for this. And my coach ended up putting me in the absolute division. And I didn't really want to do it. And I was just like, oh, no, I just want to go home, man. Like, I didn't fight good. And in the open weight, um, I ended up winning, I think, five matches. And I got to the finals. And I lost in the finals. But one of the guys that I – the guy I beat in the semifinals um, was really, really good. He was a couple-time world champion. And he beat, like, uh, Bernardo Faria. He beat Adolfo Vera at the lower belts. Um, and I ended up beating him in a really good match in the semifinals. And I think after that tournament, uh, it gave me a lot of confidence, man. It really changed my mindset. I started to, to realize that I could hang with, with the better guys. And soon after the words, like I won the Pan Ams, I got second at the Brazilians in the absolute. Um, I won a couple big tournaments and that's kind of where the ball started to get rolling for me. And you're not, um, at the upper end of the weight scale in open division, right? No, I was I was a lightweight at the time, and I could have made featherweight. Like I fought a couple tournaments of featherweight at that time, so I was like, I was like 160 pounds on with a gi. The guy that I fought was a uh, in the semis was a bigger guy. He was like a super heavyweight. Wow, that that would be a like a like a tremendous confidence booster, a tremendous like uh, feeling of of hey, I'm pretty good at this. You, you beat a guy like that, and also with the size difference and. And, uh, man, that, that's really, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. I was really scared to fight him to tell you the truth. Like I was, I remember at the tournament, um, I had fought with this gi on and it was like a, it's like a coral gi and it had, um, it was a white gi, but I had uh, black lapels and I'd done all my matches in it. And I remember when we got to the semifinals, the, the coordinator of the tournament, he kind of just spotted me. He's like, no, you can't compete with that gi on. You got to change your gi really quick or you're going to get DQ'd. And I didn't even really want to fight the guy. I was so scared of him. I was like, no, I'll just take third place. And uh, my coach got me this key that was way too big for me. They switched it up. And I was like, man, how am I going to fight the guy with this, man? It looks like I'm wearing like a, a potato sack. For <laughs> and he was like, just go in there and do it. And I was so scared, man. But I went on auto, autopilot in the tournament. And to tell you the truth, at that point, it was definitely my best match ever. And I was like, man, I just got to stop overthinking this and just kind of go and trust my instincts. And I think that was like a, a big step for me. If you, if you're coaching a student 
and they they look uh, nervous. A lot of students, of course, look nervous when they go out and compete. But like they're to the point where they don't roll the way they should. You know, like, they're doing great in class, and then when they go compete, they're slowing things down, or they're or they're just not they're not themselves. Um, it sounds like that that was kind of ha- that could happen to you at that moment. Like you were so nervous, but then something switched, and uh, you went to perform. What would you say to a student that you're coaching who looks like really nervous about uh, competing or, or doing the next match? Um, yeah, so this is good because I I do coach a lot. Um, I was one of the head coaches of the GF team in Brazil for probably five or six years, so I had the opportunity to work with lots of different kids. I had the opportunity to work with kids that were absolute killers that were like multiple time world champions, uh, national champions. And I had the opportunity to, to coach kids that are just getting their feet wet or, you know, kids that did have a lot of different issues with performance, um, performance anxiety. And, uh, I try to tell a lot of the kids the same thing, you know, um, at the end of the day, you know, you're there to have fun because, you know, if jujitsu wasn't fun for me, if competing wasn't fun for me to, to be a hundred percent honest, I wouldn't do it. You know, um, and I just tell them, you know, go out there and have fun. And another thing, trust your instincts. You know, your instincts are going to – you can think about what's going to happen a hundred or, you know, a thousand different, you know, options or different scenarios that are going to happen. But when you step on the mat, whatever is going to happen is going to happen. You know, your instincts are going to take over. And there's got to be a winner and a loser at the end of the day. So I just try to tell the, the guys, you know, have fun. Try to – Trust your gut. Like if your body is telling you to do something, to go left or to go right, trust that. And try to listen to your corner as much as possible because we're going to try to point you in the right direction. Um, but just a couple of basic things like that, yeah. That That's great. That um, it, it seems – you know, counterintuitive. When we when we start jujitsu, you trust your gut, and you get get your back taken, you get choked out, you get a triangle. You get, like there's so many things that happen immediately when you trust your gut. But after you train hard and you and you get those hours and hours and of time on the mat, you're like the gut changes, and trusting that there's a reason because um, your, your brain has changed and it, you know, it recognizes things uh, ahead of time and. And uh, I think that's that's great, and 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 trust that your training has uh, has been good, and that uh, if you if you're wanting to do something or you think this is the right move, go for that, you know, because <laughs> you've got thousands of hours of practice uh, to back that up. Sure, yeah, I agree, a hundred percent, man, a hundred percent. And I think uh, I think another thing that I tell the kids too, because um, a lot of times I coach the competition in the competition classes for years on a daily basis is especially the kids that I know that would work really, really hard. You know, I would tell them in training before the tournament, I said, just make sure that you know that you deserve to win at the end of the day. You know, don't leave any stone unturned. Like if you put the work in, I think that's a really good feeling to have going into a tournament. Like my best tournaments that I've ever fought are ones that I know that I put more work in than the other people did, you know? So I try to, I try to tell the young guys that too, you know, like, it's hard to believe that you're going to win if you know deep down that you don't deserve to win, you know? Yeah. Uh, Jake, I want to rewind a little bit and, and learn a little bit more about you and, and maybe some of your sure. favorite techniques that, that you've used out there. Yeah, so uh, I'm a big half guard player. I played half guard for like a really long time since I was a blue belt. Um, I played a lot of deep half guard for a while. Um, so my name kind of just started to get a little bit bigger in the competition scene. Um because I, I played a certain style, and I know like in 2008, 2009, deep half guard get really, um, really, really popular. Um, 
and now I play a whole bunch of different types of half guard. I play a little bit of deep half guard, some knee twist, um, some reverse half guard. I have a lot of material on YouTube, and there's a lot of um, – I have some DVDs out too with BJJ Fanatics. So if anybody's interested in that style of game, um, they can check those out. Um, I think the first two volumes we did on the DVDs, there's 80 or 90 different positions in between the two of them. Um, yeah, so I'm really known for my half guard um, from the bottom. And lately, like the last couple of years, I've been really getting into some different styles of passing too, um, but mostly pressure passing. Um, yeah, but that's pretty much what I play. What is it about uh, that style or like the half guard that has uh, attracted you to it so much? Um, to be 100% honest, I remember I was in Canada when I was young, when I was like a blue belt, and I did a private lesson with this guy. He was a Canadian guy, and he's a... At the time, he was one of the better guys in the country, and um, he was. Uh, I did a private with him. I asked him for some feedback after the after the lesson, and um, he was a good competitor. He's not the not the friendliest guy in the world. And he's just like, man, your half card is is terrible. And he was true. It was you know it was true what he said. Um, but I was like only fourteen or fifteen, and I remember when he told me that I was like, man. I knew that I was going to go to Brazil soon because me and my, my dad had talked about it. I think I was 15 at the time because I went when I was 16. And uh, I was like super motivated when I got to Brazil. I was like, you know what? I'm going to try to learn as much half guard as possible when I'm there. Um, and it was just a really funny coincidence because the guy that I ended up um, training under in Brazil the first time I was there is uh, Eduardo Jamelon. He's like a former alliance guy. Um, he's a check mat guy now, I think. But he had a huge influence on like Jeff Glover and Bill Cooper. Um, and he actually is the guy that pretty much invented the deep half guard or really like revolutionized it, you know. Um, he was a really top-level competitor. So all we really did for the two months that I was at his school the first year and the four months the next year was we'd do half guard every single day. So it was a pretty good little uh, – it was a good coincidence that I ended up at that school and I ended up doing private lessons um, with one of his students too. Uh, and I did them almost like on a daily basis. The currency um, from Canadian money to Brazilian money was, was really good. And the guy wasn't a big name guy. He was a really good black belt. Um, so he charged me like a super fair price. Um, so like I had a huge jump up on my half guard game from the first trip to Brazil. Um, and then I came home and I started having success with that. And my uncle in Canada, who was my coach, my uncle Kevin, um, he told me, he's like, he's like, man, you should stick with this game. And he really helped me develop that game too. Um, so probably from the time I was, yeah, 16 is when I started playing it a lot. Uh, Jake, to me, it seems like the uh, half guard and the deep half are like totally different guards almost. Like uh, I don't like playing half guard. I'm, I'm not, I have a, I don't have a good half guard and I, it, it's just like a, it's a tough position for me. I like deep half. Um, I've had some success with it, and it's 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 fun. Um, am I missing something there, or are they actually fairly different, or is one just is is half guard a pathway to get to deep half sometimes? What's what am I oh, missing no. here? You're you're right on the money, man. Like, um, there's going to be different styles of half guard that you can play, and you know I've got a couple that I'm really good at, and there's other styles of half guard to be honest that I'm terrible at. You know, I'm, I've been doing half guard for 20 years, but there's there's certain things that I do really well um, and certain things that I don't do well. Um, but I would definitely say half guard is definitely not for everybody. You know, um, 
because there's a lot of you getting smashed involved in it. Like, you know, I, I actually pride myself in the, in a, in a good shoulder pressure that I can take or a good smashing that I can take without letting someone pass my half guard. But it's definitely not a game for everyone, man. Um, I think you got to have like, it's like an inches game. You've really got to have like little tiny victories inside the position, you know, um, where your head is at. And there's so many different little details. Um, but deep half guard is nice because you can kind of keep the guy off you a little bit more. You're not taking that smashing as much, you know. Um, but the style that I play, <laughs> I think my ears are, are really cauliflower. <laughs> and my, and my face has been smashed a couple times because I've, I've played that game for, you know, 20 years. Yeah, that's that may be my main issue with, with even just going to, to half sometimes. is like, this, this guy's going to smash me and uh, take all the fun out of it. And, uh, and but, but yeah, deep half is a... Is it a lot harder to smash somebody if they're they're that far underneath you? Is what it seems like to me. And and I get to there and there's no pressure and and sometimes they pass them as they get swept. But um, it's just a it's a more pleasant experience for me uh, not being the toughest guy on the mats. <laughs> oh, I understand, man. Like I have kids all the time in Brazil when I coached in Brazil a lot, and when I coach in Canada, and they're like, oh, you know, I want to play half guard, and I'm just like, let's try it out for like a month and let's see how you like it, you know, because. It's definitely not for everyone, man. So, uh, and I know it's just over audio here. Uh, what is reverse half guard? That's one of your DVDs that talks about reverse half guard or, or shows techniques in that. What does that what does that really mean? Uh, so, reverse half guard is just like when the guy does the back step. Okay. You know, like so if he's trying to tackle the knee bar or different stuff like that. And honestly, to tell you the truth, that's my best position. Um, a lot of what I, I've all the success I've had like over the last couple of years in competition. Um, has been from reverse half guard, probably from, I'd say like late blue belt on. Um, so I really try to force guys into that position a lot. And I have a lot of little tricks and sneaky things that I do to try to get the guy to go to the back step. Um, and I'm very comfortable when, um, when I land there, you know, and I think, uh, I try to tell a lot of my students, this is, it's good if you can get really good at like certain positions and be able to put people there because, if you can clock more hours into that position and you can constantly put your opponent there, you're going to really, you know, increase, increase your percentage of, you know, how many times you're going to be able to sweep the guy, submit him, or, you know, how many matches you're going to be able to win from those spots. So I play, it's a weird spot, but I play from there a lot. So, um, I feel very comfortable when I land there. Yeah, that's awesome. And yeah, and you kind of just funnel the match, to where you to where you want them to be, and uh, <laughs> like blue belts, if you want to tap out purple belts, put them in a spot where you've trained a lot and they're kind of unfamiliar with, and suddenly they'll have a blue belt level of, of training in that spot, maybe even a white belt level of training in that spot, and they become human again, <laughs> and uh, and it, it really opens things up. So we should all be looking for you know kind of places in our games where uh, you spend a lot of time and energy and focus on something, and then. Uh, be able to get there and uh, just it gets easier when you're in a spot like that. Yeah, I agree with you 100%, man. I think you're right on the money on that. So uh, what, what are your your plans for this coming year? Um, so this year I'm going to be doing – I've been doing this quite a bit actually. Um, I've been coming to Ohio quite a bit to do my training camps. Um, I train here in Columbus a lot now. I train in – like I said, in Brazil for like uh, – 10, 11 years um, total. 
And I like the training down there and I learned so much from the training there, but I really, um, I've really connected with one of the guys here in, in Ohio. We've been friends from, from a long time for over 10 years. Um, uh, Vitor Oliveira is his name. He's really top level competitor at lightweight, yeah. multiple time, like uh, world medalist. And we've always been good friends, but, um, he's got a great school down here in Ohio, um, in Columbus, uh, Ronan training center. And I've come down here to do a couple of my, of different camps and, um, I just find like I learned so much from him. Like we're training partners, but I, he, I really, um, I treat Vitro like a coach too. I go to, for, to him a lot for different advice on different matches or how I'm kind of like putting my training together. He's a really smart guy. So he's like my main training partner, but he's also like one of my main coaches right now too. And, uh, I really enjoy coming down here. And another thing too, is like, he's got a great group of guys at the gym. There's lots of good guys for me to train with. Um, and also Ohio is super strong for wrestling. So I've been exposed to like um, getting to cross train with some really good wrestlers here. Like uh, Sal Marandino is one of the guys that's helped me a lot. Um, he was a wrestler from OSU from Ohio state and they have a super strong program. And I felt like that's really benefited me as well. But being at Vitor's gym, um, it's, it's my favorite place to train. Like over the last couple of years, it's a great spot. Well, that, that's awesome, and uh, <laughs> I'm sure they appreciate having you there as well. Yeah, I'm happy, man. I'm really happy. I got back here actually probably just like three days ago to start doing a camp, um, start getting ready for some stuff. Uh, I had a couple injuries at the end of the year that I was just trying to take care of, so I didn't really train too much at the end of the year. Like the last two months, I was training like three times a week, and I'm usually training like three times a day. Um, so it was a nice little break, but I'm really happy to be back in Ohio. And Yeah, man, they've got a great squad here. That's awesome. You also have a uh, a DVD out with uh, BJJ Fanatics, uh, Gringo Passing. Um, tell me a little bit about that and what and what that's about. Um, yeah, so man, uh, it was funny because when I first started training jujitsu, like I got really good at the half guard, and that was kind of like my main focus. And I completely neglected the top. You know, like I was super strategic, and I did really good at at big tournaments when I started to have success. But overall, my jiu-jitsu, uh, I tell the students this all the time, overall, my jiu-jitsu was very, very limited. Like, you know, I was good at maybe like two positions, two or three positions. And I was really good at getting there, you know, and keeping the person in that position. And I won a lot of matches. I won a lot of tournaments because of that. But overall, um, like I said, like my jiu-jitsu was super limited. Like on top, like if you looked at me hard, like I'd fall to my back. You know, my passing was non-existent. And uh and Julio, my the head coach, my, who's been my head coach for the last ten years, when I got to Brazil, like that's one of the first things he told me. He's like, "Man, you're a really good competitor. Like you're really smart, like strategic, and you win a lot of matches, but you've got a lot of holes in your game." He's like, "Man, we really gotta, we really gotta start like getting you a good top game because now you're a black belt. Everybody's good at certain spots, and you know, and most of the best guys or all the best guys are good everywhere, and." um he had a huge influence on me, man. And honestly, to tell you the truth, I feel probably as comfortable playing on top as I feel playing on bottom now. But that was like a 10-year a process for me to do that. I've really forced myself to train on top a lot. And now, honestly, in training, I prefer to train on top more than I train on bottom because I think it's easier on my body. Um, and so it's just a lot of the different concepts and different passing styles that I learned in Brazil training with Julio and then training here with Vitor in Ohio as well. Vitor's an amazing guard passer. He's someone that's really helped me a lot too, um, in my passing. Um, 
and just a couple different styles of passing. I play a couple different positions that um, that I don't think people play on the top. Like I play like a cow catcher position from um, from the top of half guard that's on the DVD quite a bit. And I've had a lot of success with that over the last couple of years in competition too. Um, yeah, so I really wanted to do a DVD on all the passing because I've really been into that for like the last 10 years. I've been into the passing just as much as the half guard, you know? Yeah, there's. I think that time in in everyone's game where you you prefer one or the other, and it's like I gotta start learning the other one, and uh, it is a little bit of growing pains there because, like, you start to roll or you start to to train, you know that if you go to your your half guard, you're gonna do great, but you're like I gotta just work on passing, and and for a little while, it, it's not going as well as it should because you're having to take that step back and. And uh, you get to part, a place in the game where you're not so familiar. Yeah, I wish I would have done that earlier, to tell you the truth, man. But I think that's just an ego thing. Like when I was younger, I'd be like, you know, I'd be so concerned about winning every round in the gym, you know, like and especially against guys that were like were my weight or like my belt level or like the same level of competitor I was. I was always so like focused on winning. And I just think that winning in the gym really doesn't mean anything you know you're not winning any money you're not winning a medal you're not winning a big title and uh once i started to let that go and kind of i cared a little bit less about um my results in training i think that made a big difference because i could put myself out of my comfort zone yeah that that's a great example um being a half guard player do you like to pass the half guard absolutely absolutely yeah (laughs) Uh, because the thing is, is like I tell most of the guys this that that especially that I train with, like if you get really good at um, sweeping from the half guard, you have to get really good at passing the half guard because, man, like nine times out of ten, you're gonna land uh, in the guy's half guard when you yeah. throw some from the half guard. You know, so you don't if you can get yourself really good at passing at the half guard, um, it's just gonna be you're gonna be able to surpass the guard a lot of times because you're landing in a spot that you're already good at. Like that's the first part that I got good at passing on top was half guard. I was terrible everywhere else. Like if you put me in the spider guard, I had no idea how to get out. Or like if you put me in De La Hiva, um, but the very first spot that I kind of got good at passing was the half guard. Cause I would land there all the time. I'd sweep the guy and then I started to get some pressure on top, you know? And that was kind of where I started to play from the top from. Yeah, and I—that's a—that's great because it's—it's <laughs> it's the place you are forced to pass from is—is is that the, the top half because you've got there from bottom half, so it's kind of a natural progression in in uh, learning the pass. And I thinking about some of my teammates, uh, several of them like force a half guard on me, and then they pass my crappy half guard. <laughs> like, but what they don't do is they don't play half guard themselves. I think that's a great uh, advantage for them to start to like look into that. If you like to pass the half guard, you should also be playing the half guard because it's going to put you in that spot. Because like when they do, when they are playing guard against me and they sweep me, they just end up in like, you know, some position. It could be guard or wherever. But like if you're going from uh, half guard to a half guard you like to pass, you know, as you as you get your sweep, man, that's so much better. You're keeping them in that funnel. You're keeping them in that path where you're uh, going to perform well. Yeah, I agree with you 100, percent man. And another thing is too is like, if they're good at passing the half guard, they're going to have a good understanding on how to do the half guard because they're going to know what to prevent from the bottom. You know, I think there's such a flip side to that coin. Like if 
if you want to be a good guard passer, you have to understand what the guy in the bottom's looking for, you know, and vice versa. Yeah, so I think that's a really good point. It just takes time to get better at these spots, but uh, some of them like compound on each other, and, and that's definitely worth the investment in your time to, to work on those. So a lot of people out there that compete, it, it, they find a particular challenge uh, in the moments leading up to the match, like you know, trying to stay calm or stay focused um, or get to the right level of excitement. What do you do before a match, and how does that help you? Um. Man, I get super nervous still, man. I've been competing since I was like 15. I'm going to be 34 next year, so I've been competing internationally for like 19 years. And, man, I still get super nervous. I have like kind of like a whole routine that I do um, the day before the tournament, like the month before the tournament, like how I prepare, and on the day too. I think, I think if you can keep yourself in a routine and just like realize that it's just another day at the office, you know. And I think another thing is – is like I said, like trusting my instincts and like just pulling the trigger, you know, like I won a lot of tournaments when I was younger that I really didn't like open up at all. Like I played so safe, you know, and I think you do have to be safe and strategic, but I do think, you know, you want to take chances because if you're confident in your skill set and you know that you've put the time in, I think those will pay dividends in the match. If you just like trust your instinct and pull the trigger, you know? Um, yeah, but I have, a I definitely still get really nervous and, you know, for me, my wife competes at a fairly high level too. She's a purple belt. So a lot of times now I found this has helped me a little bit because I'm more nervous of her competing because I can't control the outcome than I am of myself competing. And a lot of times we compete on the same day or on the same weekend. Um, so like I have to, I have to worry about her and making sure that I have her like a hundred percent ready for the tournament leading up to the tournament and on the day of the tournament from match to match. And um, I've actually found over the last couple of years, that's kind of taken a little bit of pressure off me. Like I almost get a tiny little bit of a, like an adrenaline dump. Um, and I'm a little bit calmer for when my, when my matches are up and it's, it's actually worked in my favor a little bit, but um, yeah, man, I think being able to control your mindset and just control your emotions and, and your thought processes is, is so important. I think the I think you know if you're you're not in the right headspace you're not gonna be able to you know um, perform at your highest level. Yeah, that's that's it's important, and you have those routines. And I don't know how important like each each step in your routine is versus the fact that there is routine that you have. That it, I think that gives uh, some level of confidence. Like okay, I did this. I've done this. Um, you know, today I've ate this for breakfast or, or whatever the routine is. Uh, I think people find comfort in that and that helps them on, on the mental side as well. And you know what? Uh, if you look back at your history, uh, like one of the probably should have been like one of the worst matches ever was one of your best. Like, like your routine was totally thrown off. You wore a gi that wasn't yours. You were out of your weight class. It was, you're, you know, like you're super intimidated by the guy. You did great. <laughs> so like, I think that that's all of us as well. Like, you could be super nervous. You could have, you know, missed a meal. You could have just, you know, thrown up for me and whatever it is. You could still go out there and do amazing. Um, just, it could be out there for you. So, um, I agree, man. Like some of my best tournaments were ones that I was injured or I was sick too, where I just had like zero expectation going in, and there was no pressure on me. I found like, you know, and. That works in your favor sometimes too, man. It's crazy how your brain works, you know, before the match and during. But 
No, I agree with you, man. Sometimes all the circumstances can be like not going in your favor and it can work out at the end of the day as well, you know? If you uh, were to make like a like a cheat sheet for somebody who's going to start competing, like do these few things, uh, what would be on that on that cheat sheet? I'd probably say like at the very top of it, I tell all the young guys this, and this is something that my, my old wrestling coach, um, he taught me. And he, man, I owe him a lot for my mindset about competition. Like he had a huge influence on me from the time I was very young. Um, cause he was a very high level competitor. Like he almost went to the Olympics for wrestling and, um, he would tell me all the time, he'd be like, don't think about the outcome. He's like, think about the process. Think about all the things that you have to do to get the desired outcome that you want. He's like, don't think about whether you're going to win or lose, you know, think about staying in your stance, you know, lowering your level, keeping your hands in front, good movement, you know, um, think about your lines of defense. Think about where you have to control, where you want to put the guy. So I tell this to a lot of the students too. That's one of the first things I tell them. I'd say, you know, trust your instincts. And also I said, I told them a lot, just, you know, focus on the process. Don't focus on the result. The result will come. If you do the things right that you know that you have to do right and you're able to implement those into the into the match, you're probably going to win, you know. But if you're worried about winning and losing, that's not good. You know, you got to be in the moment. You need to be focused from, you know, position to position. Yeah, that's that's a great thing to do. Like, it's, uh, just if your focus is, I want to win, that's not focusing on how it's done and, and you'll get distracted and you'll you'll do, you won't pull that trigger like you're saying sometimes. If your focus is on, hey, I want to get half guard, I want to sweep him, I'm going to pass his half guard and choke him out, like, so first step, you know, get your half guard <laughs> or or whatever your focus is. Uh, focus on the 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 tasks at hand and, and the and and performing versus the result, which is oftentimes a, a pitfall that people fall into. Yeah, absolutely. Another thing that I'd say too, man, that I forgot to say was um, really worry about how you, the match starts too. Like especially like at high level competition jujitsu, like. If you're in a match at the Worlds or the World Pro or at a big tournament, you know, if you get behind the eight ball, it's really hard to recover, especially if you're going against someone really good because they're going to be really good at dictating the pace of the match and keeping you in their comfort zone, you know. So, like, I tell a lot of the uh, the students, too, is like, you know, don't, you know, you got to worry about the process, but you need to really worry about the first, like, 10 seconds, like to get your guard pull off or to time a takedown off their guard pull, like you want to try to always be first right away, you know? So I think it makes winning a lot easier. Like if you can start, you get like a, a step in the right direction right off the bat, I think it makes it a lot easier for you to dictate the pace of the match and be able to pull the guy into where you're good and to keep him, you know, away from where he's good. Yeah, absolutely. It, it and, and you can just, everyone knows the experience of, of rolling with somebody and um, let's say you're playing your guard game and they just pass your guard and they annihilate you. And then the same person, maybe in a few days, you're playing your top game and it's the exact opposite. You pass their guard and you beat them. It, it's getting the start to the match can be a huge deal. Like somebody who may seem impossible to beat, if it starts off a different way, is quite beatable because they're now you know playing into your system. Oh, I agree. I agree with you 100% with what you said. Yeah, I've had matches where to be a hundred percent honest that I thought that I was, I was like, man, there's no way that I can beat this guy. Like people that I idolized for a long time. And when I was able to put them into my spots and then 
you start to slowly build confidence. You're like, okay, this guy's a human. He's got, you know, two arms, two legs and a head. Like, you know, I can, I can do something here. And I've won a lot of matches like that with guys to, to honestly, I didn't think that I could beat before I fought them, but if you can put them in those spots, everybody's beatable, you know? Yeah. Unless maybe Hodger Gracie. Hodger Gracie is <laughs> probably one of the toughest guys in the planet to beat, you know? <laughs> You have a lot of great uh, coaching advice and tips. You've, you've got a lot of experience with that. Can you give yourself like a compliment about uh, about your style of coaching or something that you like to do as a coach to your, to the students? Um, I'd probably say my probably strongest attribute is just be how much competition experience I have. I probably have you know six or seven hundred matches and a lot, most of them in Brazil. You know, and I've got to work with a lot of high level athletes. Like I've like got to work with. Um, Mauricio Oliveira is one of our kids. He's like a three or four time world champion. I worked with him closely from the time he was a young kid. Um, and I just, I try to, I try to put myself in their shoes a lot of times, you know, because I was not a natural by any stretch of the imagination. You know, I was a chubby kid that started jujitsu and I had no athletic ability, you know, and I kind of slowly went through the ranks and I was able to, to compete at a very high level. Um, so I think my experience, you know, because I think you really need to exploit your skill set. You know, you're going to have things that you're going to be good at and things you're bad at. If you can tell a kid, you know, build their confidence up, I think uh, those are kind of the building blocks for success. If you can start to build their confidence, start to get them to win the matches, then start to win smaller tournaments, then a little bit bigger tournaments. Um, I think that would probably be my strongest attribute as a coach. Yeah, that that's awesome. And, and that's, I think that's part of the reason why, uh, the people you coach are so, or have had so much success. Yeah, some of them, man. I've had, I've coached. I've been lucky enough to work with some kids that have had a, a ton of success. I've worked with other kids that were phenomenally talented that didn't have the same amount of success, and I've worked with other kids that had no talent, man, and and are have won national and world titles. You know, I think I think the coach has a huge part to do with it, but I think really too, it's the self drive of the competitor. You know, if if you get somebody that's really driven and they're determined that they're gonna get to a certain point and they can just block out a lot of like the, the noise of people telling them, cause there's going to be a thousand people on the way up that are going to tell you that you can't do it. You know, there's going to be very few people that are going to tell you that you can, but I think like I've worked with, uh, with lots of kids that were just super determined too, man, that just said, you know what? I don't care what anyone says. I'm going to make it. And, um, I'm, I really find I think I'm really fortunate. I had the chance to work with them because I think, you know, I was able to, to teach them a lot, but I think they were able to teach me a lot too, you know, about being a competitor. I think when I started coaching more, I think it had a huge impact on me as a competitor in a, in a positive, in a positive way. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Jake, what do you, what do you tell them uh, or, or t- tell a student when they, they lose a tough match and they, and they come off and they're pretty disappointed in, in how it went. Do you have any particular thing you say to somebody like that? First thing I just tell them, I just say it's, it's part of the game. There's gotta be a winner and a loser, you know? That's what we're doing, you know. You're going to win some, you're going to lose some. And, man, it's true what they say. Like, it's a bitter pill to swallow. You know, I've I've lost lots of big matches. I've won lots of big matches. But I'll tell you right now, all the big matches that I've lost have stuck with me a lot more than the big wins. You know, you take a lot more away from a loss. It's, it's so good for your learning development. And if you can get around that and really, like – be introspective and look into like, okay, why did I lose that position? Where did things start to go wrong here? You know, I think if you can control that and look at that very honestly, like without having an ego, 
I think I think your losses are you know will really kind of structure the kind of competitor that you're going to become you know if you can get around them um but a lot of times it's just you know telling kids like you know you made a mistake that's where things went wrong let's go back to the drawing board and let's work on that so it doesn't happen again you know but like everybody you know everyone's different you know you get kids that man they lose a match and they won't show up for a month because they're bummed out and then you get kids that are lose a match and they're in the gym the next day drilling that thing um you know, and it works different for different people. But I think mostly you got to just tell them like losing's part of the process. Everybody loses. Yeah, it's it's amazing the the uh, mindset people have going in. Like, oh, I'm going to win this for sure. <laughs> and like, and then when they, they don't go well, they get they're so surprised that that could have happened. But uh, and, and part of what you said is depends on the kid or depends on the person, and that the, that's that's also really great advice because not everybody needs to hear the same thing. You might need to boost their confidence next time. You might need to motivate them. You might need to. It might be technical advice, like you were saying. There's a lot of different things you could you could uh, get the message to, but uh, it's just part of the process. Yeah, you're, if you're going to compete, you're going to win some. You're going to lose some. And uh, yeah, no, I had a I had a really good coach, man. I had a guy that was a really good friend of mine. He was a really high level judo coach in Brazil. Uh, he worked with a lot of Olympic athletes and stuff like that. And he's someone that had a huge impact on me too. And I remember I would talk with him like maybe twice a week. I'd go to his house and we'd just chat. And I remember he told me one time, he said, man, he said, you got to realize, he said that anything can happen in, in between those four lines. You know, anything is possible. He said, so you got to, you can't really count on what's going to happen. You got to kind of go with the flow and, and trust your instinct. And I try to tell kids that too, like, you know, anything can happen, man. You could be winning a hundred to zero and get choked to sleep, or you know, twist your knee, or something can go wrong. So I just try to tell them that like, losing's a part of the game, and it's going to really form like the type of competitor you're going to be in the future. Yeah, in in a in a positive way, like it'll help in you in a positive way. Give you some if you direction. know how if you know how to deal with it, it can also some. Man, some kids that are like I've seen this a lot with kids that are super talented that yeah. win a lot. Man, they can't deal with losing a lot of times. A lot of times, it's the kids that are not naturals that are the guys, the young guys that are in there and they're getting pounded and pounded and pounded, and they're just they're used to dealing with adversity all the time. Once they start to win, they can really look at the losses uh, like you know more constructive. They can say, okay, you know, I went wrong here, but a lot of times, if you get young guys that are super talented. Sometimes they don't deal with with adversity as well as others do, you know. Yeah, it uh, <laughs> it uh, I think that uh, you, you take those and you learn from them and you, and you grow. And some kids are used to winning and they they get that loss and it's like this isn't fun anymore, and uh, <laughs> and that could be it. And that's too bad. Sure, yeah, because you see a lot of ki- you see a lot of those guys fall by the wayside. Like I remember coming up through the belts with different kids that. You know, when I was younger, I was just like, man, that guy is so amazing. That guy's going to be a black belt world champion for sure, you know. And especially when you get to black belt, in black belt, you really have to learn how to, to deal with losses. I remember Vitor, that was one of the first things he told me because he was already, uh, like in 2010, he was already a, a pretty solid black belt competitor. And uh, I remember he told me, uh, we were in Sao Paulo and I lost a match. And I was really bummed out about it. I actually lost to Leandro Lowe. It was the match. I lost a really close match to him. It was our first year at Black Belt. I lost him like four to four. And I lost on a couple of advantages, and I was really bummed out. And he told me, he's like, he's like, you know what, man? You just got to get back to the drawing board right away, and you just got to, you know, 
go, you know, put one foot in front of the other and just get ready to go to the next tournament. He said, because you got to get used to losing a black belt, especially your first couple of years, you're going to win matches. You're going to lose matches. That's just part of the deal. Then that's something that stuck with me for forever. You know, I do tell a lot of the guys that too, you know, um, but I think just being able to realize it's not the end of the world. Yeah, it's just just one event that happened, and it doesn't uh, sure. stick with you. And that <laughs> that's that's a great attitude to have. Um, how can somebody connect with you or or keep up with you on social media? Um, Instagram or Facebook. I'm terrible at social media, man. To tell you the truth, um, my wife's always telling me like you haven't posted anything for like two or three months, <laughs> you know and uh, I, I realize that social media is a big part of jujitsu now. Like I, it's funny because I'm addicted to Instagram. Like I'll go on Instagram all the time and look at stuff on Instagram, but I don't post that much stuff, but I'm going to try to get better about that. It's a new year. And like, I'm trying to get better at a, a whole bunch of different things. Um, and while still focused on competing quite a bit. Um, but yeah, Instagram, you can catch up with me there. I'm going to try to post more stuff this year. And, um, I've been even worse on Facebook lately. I haven't posted anything. I think in a year on Facebook almost, um, as far as like material or anything like that, but I'm going to try to pick that up, but those would be the two ways that you could connect with me. That's awesome. Do you have any sponsors that you would like to mention? Uh, yeah, I've got a really good sponsor in Canada, man. That's been helping me a lot. Parabellum kimonos. They're a small um, Canadian company. They've been around for like two years and we're, they're starting to pick up some momentum. Um, and I was actually, it was after the world that I got hooked up with those guys. Um, and I was, had some offers from some bigger companies. Um, cause I'd, had a really good tournament. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I'd been on big companies before and actually one of my good friends, um, is one of the owners of this company. And I was in town to do a seminar, at his place out in Calgary. And we had to sit down with his partner and I just really liked the the direction of what they were going to do. And, um, to tell you the truth, man, it's been my favorite company to be sponsored by. They've really gone out of their way to help me. You know, a lot of the stuff that I did like the last two years, they have a huge part of them and they help me financially a lot. And, um, at the end of the day too, I'm just really happy because like, uh, one of them is one of my best friends. Um, and the other guy I've had a, a really good relationship with him too. So I'm really proud to represent their company, man. Like they've gone over and above to help me out. And, you know, I'll always try to, you know, work my ass off in the gym to try to represent them as much as possible. You know, do you have a favorite, uh, gi that they have? Um, they just put out these new geese, man, that they just made. They made like a bunch of like um, white on whites and blue on blues and black on blacks. Um, and they're just, I think they're working with a different manufacturer now. And uh, they just sent me a couple, man. And for my body style, they fit me great, man. They're really good. Like they just get past the, the key regulations for me for, for IBJJF so I can use them, but they're hard to grip. Um, they're a good cut, sharp looking gi. Um, I really, really like their product a lot. They're great. Cool, and I'll I'll put a link to them uh, on the show notes as well as their stuff on social media. Uh, Jake, do you have any final thoughts for the audience? No, man. Uh, I just I appreciate you having me on. It was great having a chat with you. And um, yeah, like I said, if anyone wants to check out my stuff, they can go to bjjfanatics.com. There's tons of them. I've probably got like fifty or sixty matches on YouTube. So if you want to watch some of my matches, because um, you can study a lot. I study a lot of people's matches. It's a great way to start to pick up people's games. Um, and if anyone wants to message me, you know, feel free, um, on Instagram or Facebook. Um, I just will warn everybody. I'm very lax on, on both. Like a lot of times I, I don't look at my messages or different things. So if I do get back, if I don't get back to you right away, that's just, uh, that's just me being lazy. (laughs) (laughs) 
Not that you're avoiding anybody. You just give them no. time. And, uh, <laughs> sure, man. I'd love to hear if anybody has a half care question for me or anybody who wants to, you know, connect with me. I'm, I'm more than happy, man, to, you know, to, to talk half guard or anything jujitsu with anybody, man. I'm a huge jujitsu nerd. So I like that. I'm just a little bit lazy when it comes to, to Facebook and Instagram, even though I'm, I'm on them all the time, you know? Well, you're working hard on the mats. That's the main thing. (laughs) Jake, it's been awesome talking with you. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, man. I really appreciate it. It's been awesome to talk to you too. Man, I want to thank Jake for hopping on the podcast and doing an interview with us. It was great to have him on the show and uh, great to share some of his story with you guys. I want to let you know that there are a lot of people going around claiming to be from Wichita, Kansas. You know, this is what makes them look good. But Gary and I are actually located in Wichita, Kansas. And if you are going to come through the area or you happen to be here, let us know. Uh, at gmail.com or send us a message through Facebook and we'll train with you. We love that. Joe, where are you from, but my friend? Yeah, you know, there's also a lot of people who took one look at Wichita, Kansas and said, <laughs> I'm moving someplace nicer. Let's, let's go south. <laughs> no, I'm south of Houston by about 45, 50 minutes. So if you're in the area... Uh, let me know, and I'd love to come train with you. And you can always tell somebody who says they're from Wichita um, because they want to claim street cred, but they don't know how to spell it. You know, Wichita is W-I-C-H-I-T-A. A lot of people put a T in there um, after the I to like the word witch. So if you see that, they're lying, and Byron and I don't know them. Well, it's also unusual to see anybody from Wichita, Kansas, that has any street cred and has no face. <laughs> and ha- no, no, some of y'all have some of y'all have some street cred, but all y'all with street cred, you've got face tattoos also. So it's very unusual to see somebody with street cred from Can- Wichita that does not have face tattoos. Dead giveaway. Joe actually came up here, and um, he, after looking at everybody around here, he said it's like. Viking land. He's like, you got a lot of Nordic people up here. Um, he, I don't think he'd ever seen so many beards and red hair before. Yep, a lot of big guys with big beards. And, yep. That sounds like street cred to me. <laughs> <laughs> yep, bat, battle axe hanging in the gun rack in the back of their truck. <laughs> Doesn't everybody have that in their truck? <sighs> guys, I was reading a, an article, and it happened to be uh, from our friend's Katie and Jason Elliott from the Maroon app. And I was like, man, i got to just get them on the show to discuss the article. And Jason was available. So here I am discussing uh, this new article. Uh, it's actually written by Katie, but Jay- I have Jason on the line here. So here is a little discussion about this week's article with Jason Elliott. All right, guys, for the article of the week, uh, the article is Optimizing Body Composition for Jiu-Jitsu Performance. Uh, we have Jason Elliott here to help us talk about this and, and talk about the article so uh, jason welcome back to the podcast thank you very much it's good to be back yeah good to have you back and uh if everybody doesn't know uh jason is the uh the guy behind the maroon app the jujitsu uh training log app that uh that me and, and and joe are using quite a bit to uh to log our training and we do like seeing you guys on there as well and if you're if you if you hop on there send me a uh friendship requests or whatever just look up uh, bjj brick and me and joe both pop back up pop up and uh you can send us a request because it's always fun to see you guys training anyway (laughs) getting off topic already jason (laughs) but uh, this interesting article 
Uh, and uh, it, I think it's uh, Jiu-Jitsu has a little bit of unique hurdles to to either get around or to use, I guess, with uh, with our our bodies and, and performance. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. It's um, Jiu-Jitsu likes to throw a lot of various things at you, and if you start competing, it likes to throw, making sure you keep your weight at a certain level at you as well. Um, so yeah, it, it keeps you mentally engaged and physically sort of on your feet, I guess. But so a lot of uh, sporting events, like let's just say wrestling, where your weight is a factor. There's an off season and then an on season. So uh, fighters or, or grapplers are able to adjust for that and maybe uh, not alter their training so much um, while they're on season or off season, whatever. So uh, the article has a lot of good points. But one that I hadn't really thought about is if you're trying to cut weight while you're actively training and trying to get better, it has a negative effect on what you're able to do uh, while you're performing jujitsu. So without the uh, benefit of a, of a down season, it's just it's just hard to do that. Well, it's interesting because it, when, um, when Katie was explaining this to me, I realized I've been doing it almost completely wrong. In other words, if there was an off-season, even if it was sort of, you know, I'm taking the holidays to relax a little bit, I took that as my time to kind of plump up. And then when the training season started, I would sort of then work on leaning out and, and kind of losing weight to get back to my goal. And, you know, she pointed out that that's, that's sort of the, the exact wrong way to do it because you can't, one, you don't get as good a training benefit when you're trying to lose weight, and two... By definition, when you're losing weight, you're losing muscle and fat at the same time. And if you're doing that while you're trying to compete, you're losing muscle. That puts uh, that puts you at a disadvantage. And so it, it was just funny that for forever, I just I always looked at Austin as my chance to either you know I put on my like I called it my winter coat or whatever it was, and then uh, you know I didn't know that going into it and thinking I'll lean out while I'm training is is not necessarily the the smart way to do it. So what is the? Was, yeah, I think that I think that is also confusing for to me as well. Like I didn't anticipate that, but it makes sense the way it's explained in the article. I'll put a link to the article in the show notes. But uh, Katie t- tells a couple ways, like the right way to lose weight. So what would that be? So the right way to lose weight is you want to lose a little bit at a time. Uh, you know, you don't want to go in to sort of say. All right, now is the time. You know, yesterday for the you know for the last three weeks, I've been eating cheeseburgers and pizzas, and today's the day, and it's nothing but you know salad and tomatoes and you know, uh, you know a little bit of lean protein, because as she explains it, you know, um, willpower is a is a muscle, much like you know your your legs your you know, your leg muscles, your arm muscles, or your endurance. It's just another part of the. It's it sort of has a limit like your endurance or your strength. And if you tax it too much, much like when you're exhausted at the end of a hard roll, you just lay there. That's what your willpower will eventually do. It will just lay there. And so if you go kind of like that cold turkey while you're training and you're using your willpower to make sure you're going training every day and you're doing the other things right, you won't have enough willpower to fight that incredible light switch mentality of now is the day that I'm really going to dig into this. And so the way she explains it is to, to handle it as a much more gradual process, uh, you know, rather than think about losing, you know, pounds at a time, it's, you know, a pound or two a week. Uh, 
Um, and so it's, you're making small changes. One of the things she talks about a lot that's not in this article is she talks about being a B plus dieter, you know, so give yourself a little bit of a, of a break in there and, um, you know, be being B plus with your nutrition rather. So, you know, give yourself a little, you know, have some treats every now and then, but be mindful of the treats. Don't just sit and eat a bag of cookies, but if you're out and you want a cookie and it feels really good, then, you know, have a cookie, but it's, so it needs to be a sort of a, a broader approach than just today's the day I'm dieting and there's no more sweets and there's no more fun because you'll eventually crack. And then when you do break, you're going to wind up gaining back more than the weight you lost when you were trying to be on the diet. And whether that's a fad diet or just sort of a, you know, something you've decided you're only going to eat super clean or super healthy, um, that just only lasts so long. And that's why people get into these yo-yo cycles. And so if you just treat it like you would anything else, like if I'm going for a run, you wouldn't get off the couch and run a marathon. You, you build into it over time. And that's her approach to sort of losing weight and eating healthy is it's something you need to build into to make it sustainable so that you don't, you know, when you, if you're lifting weights or running, you get hurt and then you have to stop. Well, that's effectively the same thing when you're dieting, you know, your willpower breaks, that's when you get hurt you have to stop and then you can't train any, you know, you're not doing it anymore. So you gain the weight back much like you lost the fitness of not running or list or lifting weights. Um, that's how she sort of uses the, the idea that willpower is a muscle. And if you strain it, then you can't use it and you're on the couch and you're not getting the benefit anymore. Is that, that, that I was a little rambling there. Did that, that, did that follow? Yeah, that, that makes sense. And it's, I think we've all felt that, you know, you're on a diet and, you know, day one, you're motivated and maybe weeks go by and you're doing great. Something happens and it just like clicks and it's not working for you anymore. And part of the reasons for that sometimes is it's just too extreme or it's too hard to maintain. And so you have that kind of I'm all in or I'm not in at all attitude and you end up going back and forth. And that's that's right. really not what we're trying to do. Um, and, and also she's very... Uh, she makes some great points about, it, you know, like altering your nutrition will alter your performance. And so if, if your goal is to lose 10 pounds this month, you're not going to perform great on the mats. And if you're not, uh, and that's definitely going to affect your ability to develop as a, as a martial artist. So th- th- that'll right. be a tough month to really gain much in skill on the mats as well. So if you kind of sk- slow that down a little bit, and lose the weight correctly, you'll be in in better uh, shape with your body, and and you'll be you'll be learning jiu-jitsu at the rate that you should be because you won't be showing up to class <laughs> fatigued. That's an excellent point because it's not it's you need both to be successful, right? You need to have you need to be at your weight that you want to be, but you also have to be able to bring the knowledge and the ability to use that knowledge. So. Yeah, I think that's that's an excellent point. If you're if you're hindering all of that, then kind of the weight goal becomes less important for sure. You you talked uh, you mentioned willpower several times, and there's the it's reminded me of the book Willpower <laughs> by uh, Roy <laughs> uh, Baumeister, and it, really enjoyed that book. And it's it's kind of confusing if you haven't learned about willpower as an actual thing, and and they can test it and see that it is kind of like a resource that can dwindle throughout the day. And if you, like, I think, I'm trying to remember the book, but if you sit at your desk 
with a bowl of, uh, you know, M&Ms. That would be a bad one for me because I like M&Ms all day. And I, and I don't eat any M&Ms. But then when I get home, I, I'm like, I've used that energy, that willpower all day to resist M&Ms. I'm much more likely to break and get a big bowl of ice cream uh, when I get home in the evening. So, so to not squander your willpower on things that, that are going to affect that. So the best thing would be to take those bullet mems and get rid of them. Move them to where they're out of sight, out of mind. And then when I get home, I still have that reserve built up. And it sounds like a weird thing, but they've done a lot of scientific tests about willpower and stuff like that. And it turns out that most people are, you know, behave this way. And it is kind of a, a resource that you end up with. It's a state we all feel it where if, you know, if somebody's kind of picking on me all day or yelling at me or I'm, I'm messing up, I'm messing up, my reserve for, you know, being the common cool guy I would like to be is going to go down and down. And by the end of the day, it's like, boom, it, it, it doesn't work out for me. And, and you recharge this with sleep and proper diet and that sort of thing, I think. And I'm trying to remember the book. It's been a while. But it's, uh, it is a resource that you have. It's kind of like running. If you, if you want to run, you, you have a certain amount of cardiovascular output you can put out. And you, you could change it a bit obviously with with running but it's much better to to do things more efficiently with your uh your body and your mind absolutely one of the things that that katie talks about when um you know she's helping people with their their nutrition is and we do it here is is kind of cleaning the cleaning your house out of all your temptations so that you're not as you said even if it's not work if you're just sitting at home and you know you've got a bag of chips in the cabinet it just sort of it's like the telltale heart it just sort of calls to you and you got to fight it and fight it and fight it. Whereas if it's not even in the house, you may get that urge, I want some chips. But if they're not there, then the urge kind of passes because there's nothing kind of feeding that temptation the whole time. And so, you know, she recommends cleaning out those things out of your house, out of your out of your, you know, your cabinets, out of your refrigerator or whatever. So it's, it's, as you said, it's not just sort of calling you all day long, testing you. Yeah. And uh, so what, one of the things that – Yeah. Ahead, sorry. No, go ahead. I was going to say, the other part that really surprised me, um, you know, with, with Katie is when she talks about how long it takes to rehydrate. Yeah. I know I'm definitely one of those guys, if I have a tournament and I'm, you know, I'm like, you know, three or four pounds away, to me, that's just, all right, I'm jumping on the treadmill for an hour and I'm going to sweat it out. And, you know, when I'm done, I'll weigh and I'll get my Gatorade and I'll be good to go. And the whole, it takes, you know, 20, 24 to 48 hours to fully rehydrate. I, I just never... I mean, I assume that was for people that were going like crazy, like losing massive amounts of water weight. But I just that was surprising and something that really made me re reapproach how I how I think about getting in those last that last little bit to get to the to the weight class. Yeah, and she says it it will affect your ability to perform. She doesn't like say it's it it you won't perform or you won't win or whatever, but. We all want to perform as close to that 100% that I'm capable of, uh, especially at, at a tournament or something like that. And, you know, I think most of us are performing a little bit under that just because of we're nervous or maybe, yeah. you know, any day you go to the gym, odds are you're not 100% of what you're able to do in the gym. It's just that's how we are. Maybe you sleep deprived a little bit, whatever. And so being dehydrated 2 or 3% will hinder your performance. Maybe it maybe it drops you down to being 80% of what you should be. Maybe it's just 90%, whatever. But it does change things. And why would you want to mess with that dial and move it down <laughs> knowingly as <laughs> as you're getting ready to compete? 
Well, it's, it's that in the way, I, you know, if you think about it, you know, so maybe that that first match in the first round it's on a tournament, you know, you're just maybe just you're, you're enough better than that person that doesn't really matter. Yeah. If you're already starting the day dehydrated and then you've got a tournament and you're, you know, you're nervous and, you know, maybe, you know, you're going to the bathroom a lot or you're just you're doing things. So you're not hydrating. You're kind of you're falling farther and farther behind the hydration curve heading deeper and deeper into the tournament. So maybe by the time you're in that semifinal or the final, you're actually dehydrated and that, you know, that, that percentage of, of how it affects your, your performance, then it really matters. Cause you're at either you need to be, that person's better. You got to be absolutely on your best game to get it, or they're the same as you, or they're just below you. But if you're, if you're in hindered, then you're not going to win any, any of those scenarios. And, you know, you see why, you know, you don't want to start at a hole. Absolutely. It just magnifies throughout the day. Yeah. It, it, I, uh, I mentioned that, that you're, you're the, the guy behind the, the maroon app. Um, and so this, this idea of getting your, your weight where you want it to be and not doing that in a week <laughs> or, um, you know, at a, at a high, high rate of speed, um, so the the Maroon app has actually a tool for that as well. Yeah, we added the uh, we added what's called Weight Tracker to Maroon, um, and I think it was either one or two updates ago. And it's it's designed to you know it, uh, to kind of you can set a goal out, and it, it kind of shows you how you can incrementally march towards that goal by giving you a sense of one. It shows you in a graph where you are in relation to your goal, but when you set it, it kind of tells you how much you need to lose per day to reach that goal. And so if it's, you know, I need to lose 10 pounds in 10 days, it'll say one pound a week and you can go, well, that's not very realistic. That's not going to happen. And so what, what is more realistic? What falls into that sort of pound a week, 10th of a pound a day, two tenths of a pound a day. So you can sort of play with where you can go. If you want to lose at that rate, what that, that date will look like if you're on it. So it allows you to to play with it in a way that rather than say I need to lose X number of pounds by X date, this shows you what it looks like. And if that's, if you can do that in a healthy way while maintaining your muscle mass and while not taxing your willpower so that you fall apart and, you know, you gain a bunch of it back. And so, you know, she had a, she had a huge input in how we kind of developed it without making it a full on weight, loss tracking app just as a as a as a helpful added for people that are already using maroon yeah that's awesome it's just another uh thing in that in the toolbox that is maroon as far as helping us train <laughs> um not just our uh, gi and no gi training and, and and log you know what we're actually doing while we're there how much time we're rolling uh keep an eye on our on our weight and and uh make adjustments accordingly that's that's great yeah if I could do a quick, just real, real quick maroon plug, yeah. we're going to do a, um, is we're, we're getting ready. We, you know, I get a lot of feedback, um, on, on suggestions for how to improve the app from users. And so what we're going to do with this next one is, um, you know, I've got, I've got a big update plan for the summer. That's going to focus a lot on schools and, and, you know, and finding open mats and everything else. But in the interim for a smaller, um, I'm going to do a user poll where I'm taking nothing but suggestions from users and then putting the ones that I can make work in the timeline and everything else into a poll that users can then vote on. So it's going to be user driven, user voted. It'll be on Instagram and Facebook for what the next, 
you know, so this sort of interim update feature will have in it. So look for that on both Instagram and Facebook if you're interested in voting on the next uh, user or the next uh, application for the app. That's awesome. And, and and you guys listening can affect this app. I mean, uh, Jason's right here. <laughs> this, this isn't Absolutely. like we're, we're not trying to change Twitter here or Facebook. This isn't this is an app that Jason has <laughs> has uh, developed, and he's definitely open uh, to making it. I mean, you want to make it sounds like you want to make it the best thing you possibly can make for the Jiu-Jitsu community. And uh, I really appreciate this app. So thank you so much for your hard work. Oh, of course. No, I, I you know the more people are using it, it's it's hard because, you know, I sit here and we kind of work on it, but I love when I get feedback and somebody says they really like it because it's, it's really hard to tell, but I just want it to be, you know, sort of the, the most helpful and useful it can be for the, for the community. Um, I just think that'd be really cool. And I like using it. So it works out. Yep. And, uh, we'll see you guys on the app. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, well, thank you, Jason, for stopping by here and talking about this article with me. All right. Thank you. Um, appreciate any time. Um, you know, either myself or Katie, you're always happy to always have a great time. And, and thank you, Byron. Yep, absolutely. And again, real quick, Jason is the guy behind the wildly popular jujitsu app Maroon, spelled M-A-R-U-N-E. And if you want to track your training and progress in jujitsu, Maroon is the best app I've found to do that. And, you know, like you hear, like you want your goal to be trackable. You want to have some sort of a, a hold on, on what you're doing. And I think that, that this is where uh, this is a big leap for jujitsu is to have an app like this to where you actually track your training and your, and your progress and see, you know, you look over the month. Okay. I missed out. Like, like this week I had a pretty light week cause I was away from, uh, I had to work on my, my better training days. And then I was gone Saturday and Friday this week. Those are also two good training days. I didn't have to work them, but I was just off, but I was out of town, man, not a whole lot of training for me this week. <laughs> So maybe I'll try to pick it up next week, and the, by the end of the month, I can look and see uh, how I was able to do. I think that's a tremendous tool, and uh, it, it's it's a great app for training. And if you're on there, find me and Joe. Just search for BJJ Brick, and we will pop right up. You know, that's why, you know, I was talking to Joe earlier today, Byron, and I was telling him how great training I had today, this morning. And I just realized why it was so good. You did not show up. That's, yep. You you were rolling on you were on fire today. <laughs> I was on fire, and you know I rolled for a long time. I had a lot of energy in me, and it's related to Skippy peanut or Peter Pan peanut butter. I'm sorry, Joe Joe and Gary. I was going to tell you guys a joke about peanut butter, but you'll just spread it. Ooh, that was pretty bad. Huh? Oh, you're so that was terrible. That well. Was awful. <laughs> uh, yeah, you try googling peanut butter jokes to find something better than that. <laughs> well, it's not about peanut butter, but did y'all hear that uh, uh, William Shatner started a lingerie company? Uh, no, no. Well, it, it wasn't around too long. Went out of business. It turns out Shatner panties is not a good name for it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That was good. That was good. You know, I mean, I have never worked like in a peanut butter factory or anything, but when I was younger, I did work in an orange juice factory. I got canned. Oh, that's clever. The lady from the lady from HR said I couldn't concentrate. 
<laughs> oh, Gary. This is pretty bad. Uh, Joe's actually wins the competition. <laughs> Good job, Joe. Uh, yeah. yeah, but I stole that one. Gary's probably making his up on the fly. He's clever like that. No, I actually have to say I started off a speech uh, with that. Uh, it was a speech for HR, and I started off with that. And uh, I got a better reception there than I did with you guys. Because <laughs> They because were probably we're, being nice to me. We're actually expecting something funny to come out of you, Gary, because you've got a, a history. <laughs> and you've never seen it happen. The, no, it, uh, you do. You make some funny things on here. Maybe you surprise them, and that's where the element of humor came from. Like they didn't expect. Well, the you joke. know, most of the time, though, if you're giving a speech and you you can have a terrible joke, but people laugh at it just because they feel bad. So, <laughs> <laughs> see, just <laughs> like that, just like that. <laughs> Oh, Joe's laugh. Thanks, guys. <laughs> wow. Some people that didn't feel bad are our Patreon supporters. We have two new Patreon supporters, Robert yes. and Noah. Man, thank you, Noah guys. Noah and Robert. Thank you, guys. You will be able to identify Noah and Robert by looking at their geese because they're going to have a five-inch BJJ Brick gee patch attached to that. And uh, you might even notice something else, that they have a – a BGG Brick sticker on something that they have. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe their bumper, maybe their water bottle. That's where I, that's a great place to put it. I don't know where you put your, the sticker, but uh, Patreon supporters get a, a free five inch BGG Brick gi patch and a sticker mailed to them as soon as I can. And uh, what, what they are doing is they heard the show. They said, wow, I really want to support this podcast. They go to the Patreon app that's in the show notes and they could pledge a dollar per episode is the most common pledge that we have. And it really helps out a lot. So thank you, Robert and Noah, for your support on Patreon. We hope to continue to bring you a show that you guys love. Guys, I think we kind of cheated the system here. We just told a pretty bad joke. Is that, does that get us past the uh, fake uh, audiobook? <laughs> it might have been funnier than anything we come up with. I don't know. <laughs> Well, I'll bring a joke next week, huh? <laughs> there you go. Well, yeah, we fake audiobook about jokes, maybe. But hey, speaking of jokes and funny stuff, check us out on social media. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on YouTube. And the reason I say, speaking of funny, if you go to YouTube and you search BJJ Brick, find our page and grilled cheese, you will find Byron's funny grilled cheese video. So, Check it out. Also, check out the BJJ Brick app. Oddly enough, I am dominating the Google search term for BJJ Grilled Cheese. (laughs) (laughs) Not real competitive either, but uh, I'm the first one that pops up. Very excited about that. I'm Googling it right now. (laughs) Nearly burned down the house on that uh, video that I I made. You're right, Byron. The first thing that pops up. Cooking for BJJ grilled cheese sandwich fail. We gotta get we gotta get that meal awesome. in before we head out the door for for Jiu-Jitsu. And what quicker way than have a grilled cheese sandwich? You know, you only got five hundred ninety three views, well five ninety four <laughs> after I just looked at it. Let's get up that to fifteen hundred. So everybody listening, we need a thousand people or one person a thousand times to go to that and watch it because we want to get that from five hundred ninety three views up to fifteen hundred. There you go. There yeah, you that's go. not a very that's not very many views. 
and uh and Gary has plugged it several times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's the bad part. <laughs> but it, I mean, you think about it, really, who is going to Google BJJ and grilled cheese? Who like, how a, do you Let me tell you this. How do you combine those together? What idiot would make a video and title it BJJ grilled cheese? <laughs> well, I could tell you. But uh <laughs> And the really whole thing, the whole thing is just embarrassing now because now that we're sponsored by uh, Peter Pan peanut butter, I feel like I'm I'm really betraying some of my roots in the grilled cheese uh, industry and, and selling out to the peanut butter industry. So maybe I should make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich uh, video for jiu-jitsu. Have you thought about talking to a cheese whiz and seeing if they would sponsor? I mean, you, you already got the number one. Uh, um, BJJ grilled cheese, you know, search. It doesn't. It doesn't seem like it has to be one or the other. I think uh, 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 peanut butter and uh, cheese whiz. That'd be great uh, pair of sponsors right there. Yeah, I mean, what better jujitsu sponsors than those two? Yeah. All right. Well, the possibilities are endless, and uh, we look forward to bringing you guys a show next week. Till then, stay sweaty, my friends. And don't forget to get your maroon app. <laughs> yeah, and that'll help you train hard. And you'll train smart and you'll get better. So we'll see you on the mat, guys. Thank you for listening. I hope you find the time today to roll. After all, the best way to get better at Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is to do Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. <laughs>